who can it be now? 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 Who can that be knocking at my door? Pish off! Don't come round here no more. Who can it be knocking at my door? Go away. Hello, folks. This is Rish Benjamin Outfield. And you are listening to the Rish Outcast. Cards on the table. This will be a pout of competition episode. And I'm going to explain what that is again. If you're uh, already familiar, feel free to skip it. You know what? No, you don't get to skip ahead. Just lay back, close your eyes, and think about jolly old England. Think about it. Think about it. Rich, rich, Jesus. Sorry. Sorry, fake Sean. But they just, they, they're be, they become complacent and selfish, and they won't think about yes. Jolly good England, I heard you the first bloody time. Pout of competition is... Ah, that, let me take it, Rish. What? Let me explain what pout of competition is. Well, but you'll, you'll be mean about it. What do you mean? Well, I mean, you'll say something like, Rish wasn't able to come up with a play on out of competition that was clever enough, so he settled for pout of competition which isn't funny, it isn't unique, it isn't very clever. Very clever. You'll say stuff like that and then I'll feel bad. Well, you should feel bad, Rishi, but... No, I won't say any of those things. Rish decided to make a subcategory of his podcast for episodes where he's running a story that he wrote for a contest. And, and of course, it washed the shodding contest. That goes without saying, Rich. I guess, I guess it does. Anyhow, thank you, Fake Sean. Just like he said, this is another story that I wrote for a contest, and it is called Who Can It Be? Well, there's the reason you lost the contest, Rich. What? Nothing. This is a story that if you're a, a faithful listener, of my show, uh, you are already familiar with. I was recording one time when I came up with this idea, and I think I've mentioned it on several occasions since then, but uh, I'm just going to run it, and then we can talk about it afterward, and hopefully you like it more than some. Well put, lad. Well put. Well, thank you, Fiction. Cue the music. Who can it be now? By Rish Open the door. Leo Cora thought he heard a voice say, but it was so small and distant that he knew he had imagined it. He had imagined quite a bit in his horrible last forty-eight hours at Craig's cabin. He had imagined that there was a little oxycodone under the floorboards, and all he had to do was pry them up with his fingernails. 
and at the time that did not seem too high a price to pay. Anything was better than going cold turkey. But there were absolutely no drugs in the cabin, and he hadn't pried anything up with his fingernails, and eventually he'd passed out again, and then woken up. And now he'd been lightly dozing when he heard the knock at the door. At first he thought it was his imagination, and who could blame him in the state he'd been in? But then it came again. He opened his eyes. The hall light was visible beyond the bedroom door, but he could tell that it was night, and probably pretty late at that. The bedspread around him was damp and sour-smelling, and he suspected his clothes were even worse, but as he rose to a sitting position on the bed, he promptly forgot about that. His back was always pretty sore, but his headache easily drowned that out, especially since his skull seemed to weigh as much as a cinder block right now. The knock came again. On the other side of the cabin, it seemed, at the front door. Leo tried to shake the funk from his head, but it was still a little too sharp, too raw, and he trudged rather than walked, probably looking, in more ways than one, like a zombie, if anybody had been watching him through the windows from the woods. He blinked and rubbed at his eyes as he stepped out of the little room and into the main part of the cabin, where he'd left the light on hours before, before deciding he had to lie down again. That had been the routine the last three days. Walk around, try to eat something, get sick, lie down, and try to sleep until the discomfort went away. The knocking continued, and it was soft, not demanding in the way the police or a troublemaker would be, and it ended as soon as he crossed through the living room and reached the door. Who is it? he asked. He didn't know what reply he expected, not out here in what he assumed to be the middle of nowhere. He doubted a bear would have knocked. Help me, please. A small voice spoke from the other side of the door. Sounded like a little kid. Up here, on a weeknight, away from civilization. But maybe from another cabin, the empty ones he had passed on the way up, looking for Craig's. Leo hadn't locked the door, but he'd been a bit distracted and barely clear-headed enough to close the door, let alone secure it against intruders. He turned the knob and pulled it open. A little girl was standing on the porch where the firewood was stacked, looking up at him in the darkness. Leo flipped on the outside light, and he discovered she was alone, a child of kindergarten age, without a coat on, without shoes on. Hello, he said, and his voice came out ragged and scratchy, like he'd spent all day yelling at an umpire. The little girl was the cutest he'd ever seen, with eyes so large they... Her eyes were wide, shiny with... something. Either fear or exhaustion, maybe with shock. What a lovely child. If her parents were smart, 
They'd put her in commercials or those awful baby beauty contests you saw clips of on TV. He wanted to pick her up and hold her close to him. Some strange kid he'd never seen before. How strung out and starved for human contact was he? He focused on the child again, and in that moment realized he'd been wrong. She wasn't so cute after all, just a typical girl. But the light from the porch had hit her just right, so as to make her eyes seem to shine. It didn't make any sense that the porch light would make her look different, but he knew he wasn't thinking clearly anyway. You okay, Kittle? He started to ask, mixing up little and girl for some reason. I need help, she said again. Yeah, he'd gotten that. Where's your mom? he asked. She was in an accident. Leo suddenly felt heavier, as though he might have to sit down to take some of the immense weight off his back. I'm sorry. Can I come into your cabin? the child asked. Of course she could, and he tried to say as much, but what came out was, It's not mine. It's my buddy's. His cabin. The girl looked about five or six. It had gotten pretty chilly the afternoon before, and now, with the rain, it was practically freezing. The girl was not dressed for the cold. He was well aware that she might just be a hallucination. His friend Antonio had kicked meth, and claimed, at the worst of his withdrawal, to have seen spiders the size of alley cats skittering up the walls and ceilings, but asked her what was going on anyway. I... I need help. No one else is up here. The door was open, and it had to be warmer in the cabin. But she hadn't come inside. My mommy died, she whispered. I'm alone. Uh-huh, he mumbled. I'm sorry. Why are you still standing out there? I can't come inside. I have to be invited. That gave Leo pause. What do you mean? He saw that in a movie once, though he couldn't remember what it had been. But the scene was almost exactly like the one playing out before him. Why do you have to be in... I shouldn't say. I just don't want to be alone. No, of course not. Why do you have to be invited? It's the way it is. Can I come in? Again, a flash of some movie, not even that old a one, that he'd watched before Connie left. They had been sitting on the couch. He'd been half asleep, and she had been mad at him because he'd spent most of his tax return on... A scary movie, it had been. Dear God, he was pretty sure it had been a Dracula movie. You're a vampire, is that it? And the girl's eyes went wide. She took a step back, more like a lurch, as if he'd made a grab at her. No, I... Vampires aren't real. I... Now she looked more scared than before. 
desperate. He chuckled. I'm dreaming you, aren't I? You're not really here. No. Uh, yes. Can I come in? If you're a vampire, I guess I should get my silver bullets out, huh? Okay, she said. I'll just stay here on the porch then. I don't have to come in. Deck. It's called a deck. What time was it? Leo swiveled his throbbing head to check out the clock and saw how truly awful he looked in the mirror beside the thermometer and binoculars. His skin seemed almost gray, and the circles under his eyes made him look, absurdly, like a cartoon drawing of a... There was no little girl in the mirror with him. Just an empty doorframe. Well, that clinched it. Unless he really was having a hallucination, in which case it resolved nothing. He turned back. What's your name? Alicia, she said, the pronunciation unusual. Do you want to eat me, Alicia? Eat you. Drink my blood? Yes, she said, then winced as if she'd forgotten her keys, if a child had keys. I'm sorry. Don't be afraid. I, I won't drink your blood. He smiled. This was kind of fun, as far as hallucinations went. It beat giant spiders, anyway. But you want to. Yes, but I won't. I promise. Sure. Please believe me. He sighed. He wanted to, but this was just too weird. He wasn't sure he wasn't dreaming it, in which case it didn't really matter, did it? You have a funny smell, she remarked, and it did sound like something a real child would say. Alicia, how old are you? he asked. I'm six. Uh-huh. And how old in human years? Um, six. How did you become a vampire? I don't want to say. It's sad. Oh, okay. He stifled a yawn and actually considered closing the door on her. But he didn't. Were you bit by a bat? No. The master. She sighed, psyching herself up to jump off the diving board. Me and my mommy got in an accident in our car. She got killed. I was hurt, and this man, the master, came and helped me. He made me one. He bit you. Uh-huh. I miss my mommy. Even then, standing in the doorway, he could feel it. A low, gnawing discomfort, like a dog with a new chew toy, reminding him that the true pain could return at any time, as ghastly as a monster in any Dracula film. You know... 
I miss my mommy too. I was just thinking that yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, my head felt like it was going to crack open. A cold breeze blew, shaking the trees and cutting right through his t-shirt and pajama bottoms. So this guy, your master, he made you a vampire. How long ago was this? I don't know. Like, in the springtime. The springtime this year? Uh-huh. Do you live up here? In the mountains? Not usually. Where we lived wasn't safe from bad people. He looked beyond her, but there was pretty much only blackness. No other cabins had their lights on, and the clouds kept any moonlight at bay. Still, someone, something, could be out there, watching him, and he'd never even know it. And you kill people? he asked, almost casually. No, I'm not good enough yet. Master kills and lets me feed. I don't get hungry very often. And where is your master now? He is dead, too. A man got him. Another vampire, or... A man, like you. A hunter, I think. He shooted him and had a knife thing that was long and hit master with it. With the knife? Yes. It made master's head come off, and then he died. You can't survive with your head off, I take it he said, but regretted the joke. No, Alicia said. My blood told me he was dead. A strange statement. Of course, this was all pretty strange. And the man that killed him, the hunter, what did he do then? I don't want to say. She shuddered, then looked down at the deck's floorboards. He looked for me, but I was up in a tree, and he never looked up there. He had a big gun with a thing on it. He would have shot me, too. I'm sorry, he said again. He thought back to what she had said a moment ago. Are you hungry now? A little bit, but I won't bite you. I promise. I just... Just what? just don't want to be alone, she said in a small voice. All right, he said. You can come in. She stepped through the doorway, and she must have let the rainy air in with her, because it suddenly became ice cold in the cabin. He closed the door and waited for her to pounce. Instead, she just stood there, unnaturally still, looking around at the walls, the thermometer and flyswatter, the big stuffed swordfish Craig claimed, the big stuffed swordfish Craig claimed to have caught off Catalina, but had admitted, while drunk, to have bought at a swap meet. You want to sit down, 
he asked. You need a blanket. Are you cold? Yes. No. No, she answered. All right. You have sweat on you, she observed. Yeah, I've been sick. You smell sick. I think if I drank your blood, I'd get sick too. He nearly told her it wasn't that kind of a sickness, and reconsidered. Better if she thought he was contagious rather than just strung out. Guess you better not drink any, then. I drank from a raccoon one time. It tasted sweet, but it wasn't good. I'll take your word for it. Her head moved around the room again, and he caught that unnatural glow to her eyes. He had to look away, or he'd start to freak out. Again. Do you have any books? she asked. This isn't my place. I, I think there are some uh, Reader's Digests in the bedroom. Toss some magazines by the fireplace. She sat down on the couch. Would you read to me? He paused before answering. This was surreal, even for a hallucination. But he was also thinking clearly, as far as he knew, and that hadn't been the case in the middle of the shakes. He remembered a stack of magazines earlier, by Craig's easy chair. He grabbed the one on top and glanced at its cover. Backpacker magazine, it looked like. To his surprise, it had stories in it. Leo read to her a story about two sisters that got separated from their father while on a camping trip in the Sierra Nevadas, and walked thirteen miles in the wrong direction. They ended up signaling a plane with the glass from their cell phones, but not before eating poisonous berries and being forced to drink their own pee. Alicia groaned at that bit, like a normal little girl. And Leo laughed. You've never heard of people doing that? No, she said. Why wouldn't they just cut one of them and drink that? His laughter and smile faded. They finished the story, thrilling to the relief of the girl's father when they stepped out of the helicopter, and Leo asked Alicia where her father was. My daddy went away when I was one. He left my mommy. If I found him, he'd be sorry. Leo didn't doubt it. His headache started up again, and he realized that, during the ten minutes reading the story, he'd felt fine, just as he used to feel, before falling from the scaffold and laying there, looking up at the half-laid insulation. What are you going to do now? he asked. I don't know. There's a place I can go, but I won't make it tonight. Why not? It would be morning before I could walk there. So, maybe somebody would dr— He trailed off. Morning meant sunlight. All the movies said sunlight was bad for a vampire. Are you scared? He asked at last. Uh-huh, 
and tears came to her eyes. They appeared to be pink tears, and that caused Leo to stand up from the couch too quickly, causing his back to pinch, his temples to throb, and his equilibrium to fail. "'What's the matter with you?' she asked him. "'I... I got sick. I came up here to get better.' "'Are you going to throw up?' she asked. "'I used to throw up when I was sick, but I don't do that now.' "'No, I probably won't throw up. Did plenty of that before.' "'Oh.' "'Do you want a cookie?' "'I don't know.' she said. There were some grandma's sugar cookies with the pink frosting that he'd brought for a snack, but had been unable to eat anything once the withdrawal really kicked in. He offered one to her. She smiled in recognition, but licked it hesitantly, then put it down. No good. I can't eat that, she said. Do you have a dog? Are you joking? he asked. Never mind, she said, and picked up the cookie again, but did not eat it. What happens if you see the sun? he asked, changing the subject. I would hurt all over, and then all the blood would dry inside me, and I would burn. She said it in a distant, emotionless voice and he got the impression this was something she had witnessed personally. Well, he'd better not let that happen, huh? She nodded. Then she looked up at him again, and was suddenly radiantly beautiful, like before. Would you like to not be sick any more, mister? Never hurt again? I... He saw her mouth open just a bit, only a few millimeters, but enough so he could see something sharp in there. No, oh, no thanks. I think I'm almost out of the woods. Her eyes went to the windows. What do you mean? I mean, I'm starting to feel better. And my name's Leo. Okay, Leo. But if you wanted to be strong and fast and to be able to do things all the time, I could help you. It wouldn't hurt very much, and you'd never have to throw up again. You said you wouldn't drink my blood. You promised. But this is different. This is for you, not for me. He pretended to consider it but wasn't sure what to say. I've messed up my life, Alicia. I had a wife and a stepson. I had a nice car and, and a job where I didn't even have to work all that hard. And I lost it all. He stared at the fireplace, where even the embers had gone out, and thought he saw Mark and Sandra and Keith, his ex-boss, and then a bunch of indistinct faces representing people he'd screwed over or let down. I get a check every month, just for when I did this thing to my back. But I've spent so much money that I don't know what I'll do. I 
don't think I'd make a very good vampire. He felt something then, and looked down. The little girl was holding his hand. Her hand was not warm, but it wasn't cold. It didn't feel like anything at all. My mommy used to say that money was good, but you can't buy the best things. You know? He nodded, slowly. She let go of his hand, and somehow, some of the pressure in his head, some of the aches throughout his body, even his ever-complaining back, seemed to lessen. It was a little bit of relief, but it was relief. You feel better? she asked, observing him. Yeah. Did you do something? Sorta. I don't do it very good. I have to practice. Well, maybe you could be a doctor. One of those holistic alternate mediciners, you know? She blinked uncomprehendingly, still staring up at him. You ought to look into that. They make good money. But she wasn't looking at him like an affectionate little girl anymore. She was looking at him like a stoner eyeing a burrito supreme. Are you sure you're really sick? She asked, and the question came out low, almost like a growl. His mouth felt dry then. Yeah. You don't believe me. You should smell that bed I've been sweating over for three days. She slowly rotated her head in the direction of the bedroom, looking like a creepy puppet rather than a child. Then she nodded. Sorry. I forget sometimes to do what Master says. I just want something, and I forget. Yeah, he said. Like me and painkillers. I knew a guy that ran over his own foot with a Honda Civic so he'd be able to get meds. But the car kept rolling, and he couldn't catch up to it to stop it, and it smashed a neighbor's fence. I considered doing that. Considered doing it myself once. That's dumb, she said, and was totally a little girl again. Yeah, I guess so. Alicia went still, and Leo thought that was the oddest thing about her, beyond the creepy eyes and pointed teeth, how she seemed not to need to move sometimes. Where is it you could go? he asked. Where you said before. Go? You said you wouldn't make it there before morning. There is a hiding place where everybody's welcome to go. It's in Wallaceville. He squinted. You were going to walk to Wallaceville. I don't know how to drive yet. I can drive you, he decided out loud. Why? What do you mean? Why do you want to help me out? Why not? Leo asked, and didn't get an answer. I have a pickup. It's ugly and gets pitiful gas mileage, but it could get us there long before sunup. Her weird eyes went wider then, 
once again very childlike, very excited. Then they receded. Not everybody's welcome to go there. Not you. A vampire place, is it? Like a, what do you call it? A sanctuary? I don't know what that is. But it's a safe place for people like me. Yeah, that sounds like a sanctuary, he said. After a moment, Alicia said, Maybe you should change your clothes. You smell pretty bad. He took her word for it and changed into his last pair of clean shirt and underwear. He put the pants on he'd worn the first day, when the withdrawal had been really bad, the worst it could possibly get, until the second day, that was. The second day, which had stretched itself out like several, was when he'd started thinking about what he'd give for a bottle of pills. He'd already lost his family and his livelihood, though he'd gladly have thrown those into the ante. But hadn't he thought about his soul as well, during those endless hours moaning and clawing at the blankets? Perhaps this was a fulfillment of that promise. To you, collect souls, he asked the empty room. What did you say? The little girl called from the other room. Call the stoves? Never mind. He couldn't find his hiking boots anywhere, so he put on the old tennis shoes he used to take fishing, back when he still had fishing buddies on weekends. His skin still alternated between hot and cold, but he grabbed his jacket anyway and led the girl out to the old truck. The ground was both muddy and slippery, and he nearly lost his footing twice, but she walked steadily and gracefully like a dancer at a recital. Her feet didn't squish when she stepped, either. His back threatened him as he climbed up into the pickup truck, then changed its mind, and he wondered if he would live in fear of it going out on him again for the rest of his life. Not much to look forward to in that case. Alicia climbed in beside him, and he didn't feel any presence there when she sat down, again causing him to wonder if he was imagining her. He started the engine, and it took three tries to turn over. You want to put a seatbelt on? he asked. If you want me to. He had no opinion one way or the other, but with the rain and slippery roads, he put his own belt on. Better safe than sorry. They drove slowly down the weed-strewn trail from Craig's cabin and down the main dirt road, now a mud road, that eventually took them past the lake, which could not be seen this late at night. To make conversation, he asked, So, are you always going to be a little girl? Like, forever? No. One day I'll be big, but not for a long, long time. What's a long, long time? he asked. Like a bunch of years. I had a loose tooth when I got rebirthed, and it just fell out two or three days ago. That didn't mean anything to Leo. So when will you be seven? My birthday's in January. 
She said it jan ru which would normally be pretty cute. My son's birthday's in January. The 30th. Mine's the 8th, she said, pretty emotionless. The rain seemed to have stopped, and he flipped off the wipers. And when will you look like you're seven? he asked her. A long time. Master said life would be hard for a while, and then Ruberty would come, and life would be harder. Ruberty, huh? Yeah, she said. It means getting boobs. That it did. They got past the lake and the little entrance to the cabin area. The road was slightly better here, but still a couple of miles before they'd reached pavement. When you hurt yourself, was it in a car accident? The girl asked. No. Working construction. Actually, it was after my shift, really. When it was time to go home, I'd left my phone on the lift, and instead of asking for somebody to... They rounded a corner, and there was a man standing in the road, holding a flashlight. There were two vehicles behind him, a suburban and a big, squat utility vehicle, like a Hummer, the glow of a cigarette behind the wheel. It surprised Leo that he noticed all this detail in the moment before he stopped. The man raised the flashlight in one hand and waved with the other. He approached. He was in his thirties, bearded, a big guy with a Denver Broncos jacket on, stained clear through with rain. He was smiling, friendly, and Leo was immediately suspicious of him. Someone got out of the passenger side of the Suburban. A tall man with a bald head. The first man approached the side of the truck, making a rolling motion with his hand. Leo looked over at Alicia, but she was no longer there. Just an old blanket and a newspaper he'd picked up at least a month before, but never read. The seatbelt was still buckled, but no little girl sat beside him. Knuckles knocked on Leo's driver's side window. He rolled it down. "'Hey there! Out pretty late,' said the stranger, again smiling, again friendly. "'Overslept,' Leo said. "'Meant to leave hours ago.' Where are you coming from? Cabin, uh, Clearview Lake. Obviously, since there was nowhere else he could have been coming from. So, hey, the man said, getting down to business. We're out looking for a lost child. Did you happen to see any? Child? Leo repeated, hoping to sound confused. Where? What happened? The man shook his head but the smile didn't lessen. Oh, little girl wandered away from her campsite. We're out looking for her. Nasty weather to get lost in, Leo thought, but wasn't sure if he actually said it. Sure is. The hunter leaned a little closer, looking around the inside of the cab. Leo wasn't sure why he thought he was a hunter. He wasn't wearing orange, didn't have a rifle, but he gave off a definite hunter vibe. No, I haven't seen any little girls, Leo said. Then he wondered if the hunter had mentioned her gender, 
or if he'd just given himself away. The man looked Leo straight on, making the sort of eye contact you'd do if you were playing a no-blinking game. You want to help us look? Sorry, I gotta be home for work. But if I see anybody, I'll bring her back here. Or would you rather I just honk? The man reached into his jacket, and Leo felt his body tensing, like getting an electric shock. The hunter removed an oversized crucifix on a silver chain. It was shiny and garish, like was popular in 80s music videos. We're all pretty concerned. Your prayers might be nice. Leo's eyes lingered on the cross as he made the connection in his still somewhat foggy mind. Um, all right. We'll do. The hunter held the cross up higher, stretching its chain toward Leo, as though Leo was supposed to do something. Take it, maybe. You see something green? the man asked, still smiling, but only barely now. No, no, it's just rare to see good Catholics around these parts. A lot more Mormons and the like, you know. Leo tried to give a harmless smile himself, but he was apparently not as good as the hunter was. Oh, sure, the stranger said, sounding sheepish. I know what you mean. He put the crucifix back in his jacket. The handle of something, a knife or an axe, could be seen against his shirt. Maybe it was a machete or a sword, something made for taking the heads off of vampires. Leo was aware of movement to his right, and noticed another man, a third one wearing glasses, standing by the passenger door, looking in with his own flashlight. He shone it into Leo's face, just to be a dick. "'You mind if I check the back?' the man asked. "'Of my truck?' Leo asked, and though there was nothing back there he could get in trouble for, he felt paranoid about it anyway. These were not the cops, even if he had something. Drugs, maybe. On the contrary, Leo wondered if one of these guys had any pills on him. The hunter had taken another step closer, close enough to kiss. Yes, of your truck. Oh, oh, yeah, sure. But the guy with glasses was already back there, looking around with his flashlight, checking every corner. Leo realized they weren't glasses, but those night vision things. He raised an arm, and in the wash from the headlights, Leo thought he saw blood on the guy's sleeve. The lead hunter took a step back. He patted the old Chevy's door, like a patrolman sending an average citizen on his way. Well, you get on home. Careful on the roads. But sure will. You have a good night. Then he added, because of course you would in this situation. Hope you find the kid. We will, mister, said the hunter, and dropped the smile. Leo shifted back into first gear took his foot off the clutch, and killed the engine trying to move forward again. It was something a teenager would do, but he turned the key, started the motor again, and managed to get going on his second try. Those men had meant business. 
The Hummer backed up, making room for Leo's truck to get through. And as he drove past, he clearly saw a rifle sitting on the dashboard, within easy reach of the driver the whole time. Where had Alicia gone? How had she gotten out of the pickup without opening the door, or indeed, without even taking off the seatbelt? Maybe she had just been a hallucination. But if so, who were all these dudes looking for? Or were they also hallucinations? The thought was enough to make him laugh. But he didn't. Leo drove down the road a ways, sloshing through puddles until he neared the section where the pavement started. But he had nowhere to go in an empty truck, did he? So, now what do I do? He wondered aloud. It's okay, a voice said from near his feet. He glanced down, and a ratty old blanket was looking up at him, with reflective, silvery eyes. He hit the brakes instinctively as the blanket sat up, and then climbed up onto the seat. It was a little girl, then, her face not exactly beautiful, but cuter than average. That was scary, she said. Which part? Leo asked, and put his foot on the gas again. Those men were the ones that tried to hurt me, she explained, unnecessarily. That hurt my master. I gathered, Leo said, and glanced at her as she unclipped the seatbelt and put it around her again. How did you do that, exactly? I don't know. It's like when I made you less sick. Leo didn't really understand, but he didn't ask. He remembered seeing all sorts of crazy nonsense in those old Dracula movies as a kid, and nearly asked if she could turn into a bat. Instead, he just drove in silence, turning the radio on for background. But up here, all that could be picked up was a country station playing Waylon Jennings, and a staticky preacher talking about those who put darkness for light and light for darkness. It occurred to him that, after driving all the way to Wallaceville and where she needed to go, she might kill him when his usefulness ran out. He didn't think she would, but what did he really know? They drove through the twisting canyon, even slower than usual because of the wet roads. Are you ever scared of the dark? Alicia surprised him by asking. Why, me? No, I... He began, then went ahead and told her the truth. Yeah, every once in a while. Are you? Not anymore, she said in a decidedly unchildlike voice. Can you run without getting tired? He asked. Apropos of nothing. No, she scoffed, and sounded like a kid again. At least she hadn't added, duh, like his own boy might have done. The drive was uneventful down through the canyon. Then the little farm towns that stretched for twenty miles or more before there was nothing leading up to Miller's Fork Canyon, and past that, the freeway to Wallaceville. By that point, the city radio stations could be heard, and he turned it to the classic rock station, which was just finishing playing Night Moves by Bob Seger. Hey, you remember this song? he asked, stupidly forgetting that she really was only six years old. 
That song by The Who he could never remember the title of started up, and they just listened to it for a minute. He heard her sniffle, and when he glanced over, he saw two pink lines of bloody tears running down her cheeks. You all right? he asked, and she turned away from him, looking out the passenger window at the buildings and reflecting lights in the wet pavement. They got off the freeway and took the ramp into Wallaceville's main drag. Only the 7-Eleven was open at this hour. What's the address? Leo asked. I don't know, she said. So how am I going to find this place? Go down this road to the railroad tracks, then turn. Right or left? I... I don't know which is left, she said, somewhat sheepishly. Just point, all right. And she did. They drove into the industrial part of town, where all the factories had been when Leo was a boy. His aunt Gretchen had worked at one of them, before they closed down. Now there was nothing more than trash and empty buildings around here. Even the train didn't come through any more. You sure this is the right pl Up ahead. You see that place where the fence is broken? He didn't. But her eyesight must have been better than his, because, indeed, there was a downed fence where a gate used to be, with just enough room for a vehicle to get through, if it was careful. Leo was careful. The street lights were all out, but one yellow arc sodium one that made everything look diseased or radioactive. This is a dead end, Alicia. You see that white building over there? she asked, pointing. To Leo, the building was gray. Maybe it had been white once, back when there was only a single world war. But now it was crumbling, and probably condemned. I suppose. That's it. That's what? he asked, but drove over there, expecting to pop one of his tires on broken glass or discarded syringes. But the gravel road leading up to it seemed in better condition than the building. Okay, stop, she said. And he did. A couple of bluish light fixtures were lit up in front of the building, somehow not having burned out or been broken. At least they could see there was nobody home. You can just drop me off here and drive away, okay? She said. And he thought of a kid not wanting their friends to see her dropped off by her mom and dad. I don't think so, he said, and put the truck in park. She looked at him steadily, like the creepy hunter had done. It's better if you go. Uh-huh, he said, and looked away. He wondered if cops routinely patrolled this area, and how it would look if he were caught here with her. Of course, she'd probably vanish again, which made things a bit easier. Alicia got out of the truck, hopping onto the gravel, and seemed not to make a sound approaching the building. There was a big cast-iron seal over where the door used to be, preventing any potential vandals from getting inside. Leo rolled his window down, about to point out that there was nobody around, and probably hadn't been in half his lifetime. But she stopped in front of it, and shook her head. Wrong building, he guessed, relieved he hadn't just dropped her off and driven away but she sighed and pointed behind her. I can't reach the thing, 
she said. He peered through the light rain to see a panel of some sort beside the cast-iron door cover. He didn't know what it was, but it looked familiar. He got out of the truck and walked up to it, his shoes crunching loudly on the gravel. He'd seen enough movies to recognize the panel on the wall. It was one of those eye-scanning things they had in spy flicks. The little girl was too short to scan her eye with it. Here, he said, and boosted her up so she faced the scanner. He realized as he was doing it he might strain his back, but he felt no pain. Alicia looked right into the slot, and her eyes were shining, like a cat or something that lived in caves. He heard a heavy electronic snap, and the big door cover slid silently away from the building's entrance. This is really your place, he marveled. Like a, what did they call it, a, a speakeasy or something? Only for vampires. I don't know what that is, but probably, yes. Hey, did you heal me just now? he asked, lowering her down again. No, she said. I just made you think I did. That made absolutely no sense to Leo, but he didn't have time to ponder it. You want me to come in? She turned to face him, those strange eyes widening. No, you need to drive away now, right now, okay? He saw fear there, but not fear for herself. All right. Beyond her, he thought he could hear a tinkling piano somewhere, and a low whispering. "'Thank you for helping me,' Alicia said. "'You are good. I hope you feel better.' Then she added, "'Don't do drinking or drugs any more, okay?' "'Okay,' he said. She stepped into the door of the building and pressed some button inside. The cast-iron gate started to swing shut. Take care, he said. And she was gone. Leo stood there for a moment, feeling melancholy about their parting, but happy he had been able to help. It had been a welcome break from his self-loathing and despair. He was sleepy, but didn't feel any withdrawal or phantom insects on his skin, as he had for hours just today. He hoped he could stay awake on his drive back up the canyon, and trudged back to his pickup truck. Two women were standing beside it. One was middle-aged, with a haircut so severe it looked burned off, the other a pretty Hispanic lady of indeterminate age. They both had flawless, pale skin. He didn't like the way they were staring at him. "'What are you doing here?' asked the bald one. Looking for a good time? the other asked, smirking. They reminded him of bullies in junior high school, amused by some private joke. I... I, I was just... They didn't move, just continued to observe him, and he got a definite predatory vibe from the women. He was aware that they might also be hallucinations, and that relieved a bit of his tension. You wouldn't be vampires by any chance? he asked. The pretty one's face changed somehow 
became harder, hungrier. He tried to swallow and was unsuccessful. He took out his keys. Look, he managed. I'm just going to get back in my truck and I'll leave you two alone. Okay? Don't think so, the older one said, still not moving. He went around the front of his truck and climbed quickly and unashamedly into the cab and onto his seat. Then something grabbed onto his legs, and he was yanked bodily out of the truck. The pain in his back, blessedly absent for more than an hour now, came rushing back. The two women were holding on to him, and their faces were horrible, corpse-like, more like birds of prey than human. He dropped his keys onto the gravel. The pretty one said something he couldn't understand. Wasn't Spanish, that's for sure. Something greedy and mean. From that angle, he could see that she wasn't young at all, but easily older than he was, her beauty just some kind of veneer, a mask she wore. A drop of saliva fell onto his face from the mouth of the second vampire. It felt hot enough to scald his skin. Hey! You leave him alone! A small voice shouted. Alicia was standing in front of the truck, bathed in its headlights. She called out to them, words Leo didn't understand. Ah, oh, listen to that pronunciation, the bald woman said, with such disdain that Leo felt more angry than scared. She hissed something in that same alien tongue. Stop it! Alicia said, not pleading, but demanding. He brought me here. He's my friend. Well, why didn't you say so? The dark-haired one said, super sweet and, from Leo's vantage point, attractive once again. She released her grip on him, and Leo fell inelegantly onto the wet gravel. His back spasmed, and he gritted his teeth. The older vampire looked down on him, wrinkling her nose. It wasn't a convincingly human gesture. What's wrong with him? He smells of something. Yeah, he's been real sick, said the girl. The woman held out her hand to Leo. He tried to stand up on his own, and couldn't manage it. Reluctantly, he took her offered hand, and she lifted him easily up like he had Alicia. You were just leaving, you said? She asked, and that sullen amusement was back in her voice. Uh-huh. Well, go, she said, and grinned. Her teeth were beyond yellow. In the evening light, they looked brown. He did not dare turn his back on her. Yeah, go, said the other one and instead of looking at her, he focused on his keys, lying on the gravel beside the truck's tire. He was embarrassed and hurting, and didn't think he could bend to try and pick up the keys. Alicia scooped them up and placed them in his hand. He's leaving, yes, she said, and the pain faded once again, like an old television being switched off. "'Where's your torp now?' asked the older vampire. 
Leo didn't know what she was asking, but it turned out to be a question aimed at Alicia. I don't... I don't have one anymore. Oh, she replied with mock sadness. Her attitude would have fit perfectly in the halls of Praisden Junior High. The pretty one purred. I'll be a Torbnach, sweetheart. Nuh-uh, Alicia said. Please let my friend go. Who's stopping him? The short-haired vampire said, and took a graceful step back. The other one did, too, like something out of a ballet. They didn't disturb the gravel one bit. Leo lifted his keys. The pretty one winked at him. They were just playing with you, Alicia started to say. I know what they were doing, Leo shot back, a little angrier than he had intended. He softened his tone. Thank you. Welcome, she said. Feel better. You too, he said stupidly. The bald vampire snorted. Alicia touched his arm one more time. You gonna be okay? Yeah, he said, though he had no idea. Maybe he would be. The worst was behind him. He hoped. He got back up into his pickup truck without further incident, and felt okay doing it. No pain. The engine started on the first try. Alicia waved at him, and he waved back. She smiled, and was so cute, he loved her a little bit. The two women watched, their eyes all but glowing in the night. He got the truck moving, and stomped the gas. Too hard. His pickup truck threw gravel at the vampires as he accelerated. Oops. He looked back in his rearview mirror to see what their reaction was. No one was there, of course. Right, Leo said, and kept on driving even faster. The End And we're back! I hope it wasn't too intolerable listening to it. That was uh, Who Can It? Who Can It? Who Can It Be Now? Is that the man come to take me away? Why does he follow me? It is no future that I can see. It's just my fantasy. Yow! Okay, enough. Yes, thank you for listening to that story. As Big Anklevich always says, and oh boy, I love that. I hope you enjoyed the story. I know I did. I've pretty much retired the chorus of ghostly children that say, Now there's a story, yeah, why you continue? Sorry about that. That's a particularly annoying voice. And believe me, he knows annoying voices. Stop it. I've retired that because I, I thought it was funny the first few times, and then I just thought, well, let's not do it anymore. But this was a story that I wrote in 2019. That's right, it's 2020 now. Isn't that amazing? I think this may be the first episode I'm recording in 2020. 
And depending on when it airs, I guess that tells you how long it takes to get an episode out. But this was written for a contest. It was a Rocky Mountain Horror Writers Association contest. I saw a flyer for it in February 2019, and they were wanting stories about monsters, traditional monsters, and they listed, you know, werewolves, zombies, ghouls, ghosts, vampires that take place in the Rocky Mountain area. And I think those were the only two conditions. Well, I mean, I've already told you what the other condition was with the, the story length, but we're not going to rehash that because it wasn't that funny of a story to begin with. It was a little funny. Okay, I, I guess it was a little funny. In as much as I wasted a good deal of time and made the story less good for no reason. Like, I submitted this story to them, and again, we are friends here. I fully expected this story to be among the winners of the contest. And the reason that I felt that way was because I, I had a conversation with one of the judges, like I said, there, there was somebody putting up flyers for this, and I spoke to the guy who was putting up the flyers, and I said, are you a member of the Rocky Mountain Horror Writers Association? And he said, yes, and he, he tried, you know, he gave me this, the, it wasn't a hard sell, but he gave me a sales pitch about why I might want to be part of it, and he might have been right, that might have been cool, to be around other writers and you know, being like a writer's group or something like that uh, might be helpful for me again or fun. But I had had two ideas that might have been good candidates for this contest. And the first was the idea, uh, a sort of a Donner Party kind of thing, where some pioneers are traveling west. They go through the Colorado Rockies and there's something out in the snow, a, a being that starts picking them off one by one. I still think that it's a great idea. I started to write it with an audio play in mind because my friend Tom had invited me to be a judge for a short horror play contest. I watched them and I thought, I could do this. I think this would be very good for my pioneer story. And so I sat down in the library and I started to write it. And I, I felt good about it because that's my wheelhouse, the, the audio drama kind of thing. And who knows whether I would have done well in the contest or not because I never finished it. And the reason was... I introduced the characters all through dialogue, and then, you know, somebody in their group was missing. Uh, and also they heard a strange sound out in the snow. This is, you know, a snowstorm where there's very little visibility. I just felt like this would work excellently for a venue like that. I just felt like it would work really well, and, and especially for audio. But I was just to the point that I described when I realized I was already over the mark in time. And as I've discussed in the past, to cut things down for time 
can either improve a story if it's, you know, a few cuts here and there, I need to cut 700 words, I need to cut three minutes, or it can completely gut your story if it's like, well, I need to cut this in half. Well, I need to cut a quarter of the content from this. Now, that's just my opinion. doesn't make it wrong, but it's only an opinion. But then the other thing, and I'm going to invoke Big Anklevich's huge complaint again, think about England, the amount of time that it takes to get something whittled down to an appropriate length for a contest is so significant that you could write an entire story in that amount of time. That's what Big always tells me, and he's right. So I abandoned that project. I still think that it would be really, really good, and if people bug me enough about it, I will do it. I should do it even if people don't bug me. It's a good idea. Anyhow, that one might have worked for it. The problem was I had decided that these would be Mormon pioneers. And for the contest, I had had this other idea. And it, came, it was from 2018, I was at the cabin. And when I get up at the cabin by myself, Although I love it, I, I really do. I am, I've stressed this before, but again, England. I am so fortunate to have a family cabin that very few people use where I can go and be by myself and be creative and get away from it all. It's great. That's the positive. The negative is I have this imagination and it turns me sometimes into a little kid. And I, I, I may have told you this before, but maybe I, I haven't. But when I was a boy, because we had a big pasture, uh, we would get irrigation water through the ditch. And to water the pasture, my dad had constructed this ditch that went all the way through the property and all the way to the back of the pasture. And to water the entire pasture, he had developed a series of dams. I think there were four dams, but there might have been five. He would put these dams in place and it would be either his or my job to go out there and pull each one of these dams after like 45 minutes or something like that. It might have been 50 minutes, it might have been 35. And when I got old enough, let's say 13, it would become my job to go out there and pull these dams one at a time. And then I would go back and go to sleep or set a timer for 45 minutes. And when the 45 minutes went off, I would get up and go back out there again and pull the next dam. Because when the dam was pulled, the water would flow forward and then it would begin to back up. You know how dams work, right? It would back up and it would irrigate that section of the pasture. I'm either over explaining this and you're just like making a hand gesture, which is quite rude, by the way, or you're like, wow, this Rish, this is interesting. I've never known anybody that lived on a farm and did stuff like this. The problem is I would be so scared of going out to the pasture and seeing some creature standing in there or some hunched over man with a meat cleaver or whatever it is that after I had pulled the dam, I would run half panicked 
afraid of something lumbering toward me in the dark. Uh, and I would just run. I would somersault over the fence into our backyard, into the house, probably waking everyone up. And then I would do it again in 45 minutes. I said 12 earlier, and maybe I said to, changed it to 13. I remember this at 17, 18, because, you know, until I was old enough to move away from the house, I got more responsibilities. More of this fell on my shoulders. And my dad is not a night person. He didn't want to get up in the middle of the night and do this thing. I mean, not that I did either, but I like the night. I would rather do that than get up at six o'clock in the morning or seven o'clock in the morning or eight or nine o'clock in the morning. Anyhow, this same phenomenon continued as recently as, let's say, 2019. When in the middle of the night, I went out to get something from the car. Oh, I'd forgotten my phone charger. Oh, I'd forgotten the bread or whatever. It's the middle of the night. I'm completely alone out in the wilderness. And I would just get these ideas in my head of what if I went out there and when I opened the car door, the light that's created from opening the car door reveals that someone is out there standing there or someone is lurking nearby or something is there. I had this idea when I would hear the moths flicking at the windows like, well, I'm going to go check out these moths because there's tons of them of, okay, you go out there. But you are not alone. There is something or someone standing on the deck, just waiting for you to come out. Or I'm standing on the deck and I hear a sound and I look down and there's someone there. Uh, usually these someones are human beings, malevolent human beings. But sometimes they are children. Sometimes they are ghosts. Sometimes they are something evil, some creatures. I mean, they're always evil, kids. Yeah, just... It's, it's funny that I have never outgrown this. And the thing is, I will never outgrow it. Like I said, I'm, well, I don't know that I said this, but I thought it. I'm middle-aged now, kids. That's why I'm confident I can call you kids. Even if you're Marshall and you're older than me, you're a kid, Marshall. No, you're not. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Can I take it back? I'm never going to get over this. I have this imagination, and because I'm kind of a horror guy, I really like horror. I am always going to imagine the worst, or wouldn't it be terrifying if I, you... Boy, 80% of this episode has been a rerun, hasn't it? But here's the thing. One, one time I, I got this idea of it being a little girl at the door. You know, the, there's a knock on the door, and it's a little girl, and what is a little girl doing at my door in the middle of the night. I sort of talked through this story with you uh, when I had it. And when I had this opportunity to write a story for the contest, I thought, well, you know, Rocky Mountains, cabins, etc. This sounds good. Let's do this. And I wrote it and I was quite happy with it. I guess I was in Las Vegas when I was talking through it with you. Not that that's important. The story was 
was too long for their contest. And so I started cutting it a little bit down. And what you heard was the full story, was the author's preferred version. And I went through and started taking out like redundant pieces, parts where the main character complains about his back, parts where the character complains about having a bad smell or being all sweaty, uh, you know, having not gotten any sleep or where he repeats his travails. And it wasn't enough, so I had to cut out a little bit more and a little bit more. The part with the, the hunters that stop him, I cut that in half. And ultimately, I got it down to size. And there were a couple of sentences here or there that I liked better in the shortened version because I came up with like a more economical way of saying something. And it ended up being a little bit more poetic rather than just, you know, prosaic ways that I normally would describe something. You know, the only thing I'm not really proud of with this story is the title. As you know, that's one of the things that I love the most is to take pop songs and name stories after them. It's cool because Marshall Latham's got a uh, contest over on his podcast, The Journey Into podcast right now, and it's going to be something similar to that. Everybody that's participating in the contest is being issued a Journey song. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that. Of course, I'll participate in that. But, uh, you know, there, there were several potential titles for it. I, I considered a knock at the door, but I don't know. Either you agonize over titles or it's not that big of a deal. And in this case, it's just like, yeah, that's fine. Time was also of the essence, you know, I had a deadline for the contest and so I, I gave it the title that I wanted to give it and if that title's not good, well, I'm sorry. I think what I like about the story is that it's about these two characters and each one gives something, each one has something that the other one needs. They help one another. They have this unusual connection you know, an unlikely bond. And I like that. I, I wrote a story, uh, and it was called Need, and it's very similar to this one. Uh, there's an old retired country doctor. He's uh, at a, I think it's a, his the family cabin kind of thing there too, except for it's something that's been in the family for years, since he was a little boy. He's an old man, and he's just thinking about how useless he is, and, and his... I, th I believe his wife has died and his children have grown up and they no longer need him. And Bigfoot comes to the cabin and it needs the old doctor. And uh, I've complained about the class that I wrote that story for because they were super nitpicky and assholey about that story. But I, I, I was proud of myself. I, I felt I was writing out of my wheelhouse because it was about an old man, and he had had a wife. <laughs> this story is kind of like that. The old man in need had a void in his life, and having someone need him filled that void and made him feel like he wasn't worthless. And I feel like 
the main character in this one, it, it's a similar thing. He is suffering and feeling sorry for himself, really hurting. And she comes along and he's able to think about her, concentrate on her just briefly, and it ends up making him feel good. The story ends and he goes back to the cabin. And I don't have any intention of ever following it up. So, you know, it's not like the vampire women come, come after him. But he goes back to the cabin and eventually the spell, the hypnosis that she put on him to make him feel like he was fine is going to wear off again. But I think the worst is past and he'll be all right. And the question is, a week from now or two weeks from now or a year from now, he's kicked his opioid addiction. But when he looks back on that encounter with the girl, will he believe that it actually happened? Or will he convince himself that it was a hallucination? And my guess is that he, he convinces himself it's a hallucination. Except for, you could always go to, was it Wallaceville? My brother lives in the town that Wallaceville is based on. I named it Wallaceville after uh, one of my, uh, my listeners. And then I said another story there. I guess I've already said this. Is there anything I've not said before in this episode? Yeah, he could go back to Wallaceville and drive and try and find that place. And do it during the day, mister. But if he went, what would he find? I think all he'd have to do is, you know, drive around until he found that area again. Although maybe he can't find it again. Uh, but if he did, you find that warehouse and you look and there is a peephole and there is a some kind of pad to type in a code and get in. So he'll know that it was real. But yeah, it would not be good if he went there and was seen, even if the vampires can't do anything about it because he it's daytime. Surely they have cameras or somebody, maybe a familiar, whose job it is to patrol the area. In fact, there may be people that are employed by the undead to pretend to be homeless people that hang around at that site. And if somebody comes around, it will not go well for them. But like I said, I'm not going to follow this up. This is the story that I wrote, and it came out almost exactly the way that I wanted it to in my head. Now, of course, I wanted it to be more poignant, and I wanted the poor guy to be more pitiable, and I wanted the girl to be scarier, and I wanted their bond to be tighter, but I, I'm not filled with tons of regret on this story. And, and yeah, to be honest, I'm not even that bothered that the... Did I tell you that, that I lost the contest? That, that they rejected the story? I got, you know, a, a standard rejection without any, uh, you know... We liked this and this bit. It was just, you know, nope, your story. Unfortunately, your story was not selected. Good night. I don't even feel all that bad about that. Is that weird? 
It's it's certainly not typical of me, is it? Confidence. I need to sit down and do an episode where I talk about confidence. There are a lot of things that I wish that I had. It's still early enough in 2020 that there's a certain person that I wish that I had. I know that by the time this episode airs, or a couple of weeks after that, or uh, worst case scenario, a year after, everything will be fine. And I'll look back at now, and I'll just shudder, and I'll say, <laughs> you sure can pick them, Rishi. Woo! Yeah, you, you had egg on your face. Poached eggs. I, I hate poached eggs. I can't imagine how somebody could eat poached eggs. I do feel like I'm doing a comedy routine right now. It's not intended. There are things that I wish that I had, but I, I have to say at the top of the list, kids, confidence. If I had confidence, it feels like a lot of the other things would fall into place. I got a fair head on my shoulders. I got a fair patch of hair on that head. I got a fair sense of humor. I got a fair amount of talent. I just need the confidence to do what I can with those things that I have. And I am lacking in several categories. But I feel like if I only had confidence, that that would compensate for some of those lacks how did we get on this? How did I go from saying, I, I, I am happy with this story, I think that the story is good. Okay, it's that they didn't want the story, that they rejected the story. Is that a big deal? No. Is that the end of the world? No. Sometimes you'll hear musicians talk about songs that they wrote or songs that they performed that they think are just great. And the audience was not there for them. Single didn't sell a 10 copies. Nobody ever asks for it uh, in concert. In fact, when he does play it, people get up to go to the bathroom. Maybe this story is that for me. And if that's the case, the only solution is to write another story, to write a better story, to write a different story, to write something that aims for a totally different mood and maybe that will speak to people. Uh, right now, at the time I'm recording this, I'm preparing to publish uh, The Calling Reunion. I'm, oh my gosh, I'm working hard on it. And uh, I want it to be perfect, and it's not. And I'm constantly disappointed in myself that I find little bits that don't quite work, and I, I try to fix them, try to make them better. And conversely, there are moments where I feel like, okay, okay, this is good. Or, oh, hey, that was a good line. Or, hey, that, I like that bit. And I hope that people respond to it. I hope that people want me to play it in concert. You, you see what I'm saying. I hope that people say, wow, this is, this is your best work. This is really, really good. But I don't know. That's, it's frustrating. It's scary. But I've just got to be content that I'm doing the best that I can and hope that it finds an audience, that there are people that do respond to it and go, oh, you need to write more like that. 
As you know, Bob, my niece and I have been doing a Twilight Zone podcast. We've gotten like a half dozen episodes recorded, and uh, I, I tend to try and release them in between the Rich Outcast episodes that I do. And in preparing to do that series, I looked up various lists of the greatest Twilight Zone episodes, the ones that, whether it was audiences that felt like they were the best, whether it was critics, or, you know, whether it's just some website that tallies that. Uh, I think there was one that had, like, a user vote. And there are a few that were on everybody's lists, but then you'd get a couple outliers where you'd be like, oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. And, I, you know, if Serling were alive today, which ones would he say were the best episodes? And would he be disappointed that some that he loved that were particularly special to him didn't make everybody else's list. And I think, because he, he's human, that it would be only natural to say, what about this episode? My personal favorite episode of The Twilight Zone, Walking Distance, I don't think that's on anybody's list. And we recently did an episode where after it was done, I was just like, dang, this was a mistake. This was not good. I don't know how many times I'll be able to get my niece to sit down and do a podcast with me. She's a teenager, and she's got her own life, and she's got a boyfriend, and I'm sure it's just, it's cruel and unusual punishment to have to sit down with an old fart like me, I guess, and talk about an even older television show. But she hasn't complained yet. But but the point I was trying to make is, if the number of episodes that we can do are limited, why did I waste one slot on an episode that wasn't good? The point I'm trying to make here is, everybody feels differently uh, about art. Between art, you know, everything has its own measure of people's taste. Here in the in the, the Western United States, there's this hamburger chain called In-N-Out Burger, and it people love it. People, I mean, I'm serious. What teenage boys used to do in my day with Playboy magazines, people do for In-N-Out Burger here, and their fries suck. I don't understand why someone would go to In-N-Out Burger and stand in the extraordinarily long line that they have here for it when you could just go to Burger King down the road and have something that's better. But I assure you that in saying that, at least one of you is just like, bullshit, man. Burger King is the pits or whatever you would say. You know, I'd, I'd give my life for In-N-Out Burger. They put scripture on the bag of fries. But, but I guess what I'm saying is it's all relative. And I hope that people out there, somebody, responded to Who Can It Be Now? With positivity and thinks that, hey, that should probably have been one of the winners of that contest. But here's the thing. Even if nobody feels that way, I'm still glad I wrote it. I still feel that way. So, there you go. I don't feel like that was a waste of time, and I hope this episode was not a waste of time. And that's it. I'm going to let you go your way. 
And until uh, the next episode of the Rish Outcast, don't make a sound. Tiptoe across the floor. Good night. Is this thing on? Look, this show is released under a Creative Commons 3.0 No Derivatives license. Hey, Sean, are you talking to the listeners? Oh, I'm sure they've turned it off by now. What? Rish really needs people to support him on Patreon. I mean, he's a pathetic barrel full of wet ramen noodles. And not the flavoured kind, either. The kind you have to put that brown dust on just for it to taste like anything. What's going on? You can donate a dollar an episode and up, or just contribute monthly to Outfield's daft schemes. In return, he presents exclusive content, as well as early access to the episodes. Okay, that's enough. Hello, folks. This is Rish Benjamin Outfield. What the f*** was that? You know, I, I'm trying to remember. When I was in college, I had these roommates, and, and we always wanted to go see stand-up comedians. And uh, they had an open mic night, and my a couple of my roommates always tried to encourage me to stand up and do it. And I, I never did. Uh, it's difficult to explain, but I do not suffer from excessive confidence. And as far as occupations go, stand-up comedian is a really difficult one. I'm trying to remember who the, the comedian was. It was somebody that I saw more than once. And he, whenever he didn't get a laugh, he would say, well, they can't all be great, folks. If every joke that I told was hilarious, <laughs> I would be in Los Angeles or New York right now. I wouldn't be here in this town in front of you. I don't know, maybe I should cut out that whole bit right there. But as far as stories go, they can't all be great. They can't. I don't know. Maybe all that should be an outtake. I don't like any of what I've just said. I don't like this episode at all. Let's delete, 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 delete. I inadvertently delete episodes all the time. Can't I purposely delete this one? The thought was enough to make him giggle. Now, giggle is a terrible word. Suddenly, his legs were being grabbed, and he was yanked bodily out of the truck. Now, instead of suddenly, I'm just going to say then. Then, his legs were being... Then, something grabbed onto his legs, and he was yanked bodily out of the truck. Not every story can be everything. It can't be funny and scary and poignant and sad and nostalgic and entertaining. You know, they can't all be everything. When that anthology comes out, I wonder, will I be tempted to buy it? And if I am tempted to buy it, is it because I want to read some really, really good stories that are better than mine? Or is it that I want to read some stories and say, this isn't better than my story. Which, my story was way better than that. What? Rocky Mountains, this takes place in Vermont. I was about to say, I think as far as what I was aiming for in this story goes, I succeeded. 
But I can't say that because what I was aiming for was to win that contest, to end up in, you know, in their book, in the anthology. You know, I, I need to avoid buying the anthology when it comes out. But, but, the, but the, here's the thing. Every writer has to deal with rejection. It, they, they have to. They have to learn to deal with it. There are successful writers who said that they learned to crave it because every single rejection was another badge of honor, you know? It's just like, if it doesn't kill me, it only makes me stronger. And so think how strong I must be. I feel like I'm doing a stand-up comedy routine here. And, and, and so, of course... I'm not even doing my voice anymore, my, my accent. I've, I've, here's a character who comes up, and it, is this on? Okay. So, as far as dating and I go, you could do better than me. You know, there are death row inmates who do, do better than me. But with the stories, you've got to uh, submit again. You fail, and the only way they win is if you don't ever try again. 